Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special community event hosted by Eric Karplis with a chorus of individual voices reading from the works of Henry David Thoreau. Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to Commonweal. My name is Michael Lerner. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Commonweal. A few of our recommended podcasts and videos for the new school related to this reading um, from the last community reading of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass with Eric Karpolis and Bob Haas. Bob is reading today, so just uh, one of our poet laureates and an extraordinary uh, visionary poet, so delighted to uh, recommend that podcast to you. Uh, we also have podcasts or videos from our conversation with Francis McDormand and Joel Cohen, and Francis is reading today, and Michael Pollan, uh, who is also reading. Um, so those are uh, a number of the uh, podcasts or videos that you might want to look at uh, at tns.commonweal.org, or you can just go to commonweal.org and go to the new school. And any of Eric Karpola's uh, event podcasts are very worth listening to, and you'll find them all there. Uh, I want to um, turn this over to my friend, a uh, Commonweal board member, a remarkable artist, a remarkable writer, author of paintings in Proust and other works, uh, one of the uh, deeply gifted members of our West Marin community, Eric Karpolis. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Um, I want to begin by introducing the readers who will be reading to you this afternoon. I'm starting Joanne Kiger, Stuart Chapman, Wendy Vandenhovel, Oren Slosberg, Kathy Bustamante, David Strathairn, Lexi Rome, Michael Rafferty, Lizzie Grace, Jan Brook, Judith Shaw, Hanford Woods, Alethea Patton, Mike Sell, Einar Sawyer, Burr Henneman, Susan Woods, Steve Heilig, Nicolette Han Nyman, Peter Martinelli, Charles Patton, Bernardo Lopez, Aggie Murch, Janet Visek, Michael Pollan, Melinda Griffith, Giovanni Singleton, Aliyah Haworth, Sean Thackeray, Anna Gade, Francis McDormand, Lucian Patton, Walter Murch, Gail Rotano, Howard Dillon, Brenda Hillman, Michael Bernson, Jennifer Stoll, and Bob Hass. So let's... So, I'm going to do a shortish introduction, and then we will go in to the readings, which are primarily taken from the journals of Henry David Thoreau, which are an enormous unread treasure. They, they fill 17 volumes, 2 million words, that he kept from uh, the time he was young until the time he died. Uh, interspersed in excerpts from the journals are passages from his essays, Walking, his essay, Huckleberries, and his essay, Civil Disobedience. 
So you'll hear different rhetorical flourishes. His writing in his journals tends to be, uh, as journal writing is, uh, uneven. So he goes with his thought. So sometimes that will be difficult to digest. So just stick with the readers and try to make sense as best you can. The essays are very dense and almost indigestible. Um, so uh, my original concept for today had been to do a reading of civil disobedience in light of what's going on in the world. Uh, but I decided when I went through it that it would be impossible for an audience to audibly take this in because each sentence is so compact and dense. So this is a way more of a, a, having a colloquial Thoreau. In 1837, David Henry Thoreau was 20 and just returned to his family in Concord, Massachusetts, having graduated from Harvard College. He would soon change his name to Henry David Thoreau. Through a mutual friend, he was introduced to the transcendentalist philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, 14 years his senior, who had just settled in Concord after the loss of his first wife. Thoreau recorded their first conversation in the opening pages of a journal he would keep until he died 24 years later. What are you doing now, he asked me. Do you keep a journal? So I make my first entry today. My journal, Thoreau would write, is that of me which would else spill over and run to waste. He worked on the journal throughout his life more steadily and consistently than on any other writing project. When he died, he left 39 volumes behind in a homemade box. The bound books contained close to two million words. I've pulled passages from these pages and invited these readers to recite them with us today in an attempt to have us all join together as a group of individuals in a community that understands the importance, the privilege, of living and working together under the great canopy of nature beside an all-powerful ocean. Of late, Thoreau has been reduced to one of those dead white men repudiated by the academy, shackled with a reputation as a misanthrope and a misogynist, a curmudgeon and a boor, how much this says about the vitriol and intolerance of the critic than about the subject is not the point of today's exercise. <laughs> Sit back and relax and let Thoreau's words wash, wash over you. Thoreau was an introspective man who wandered the woods surrounding the small village of Concord, Massachusetts, recording the daily growth of plants, the depths of creeks and rivers, and the migration patterns of birds. His heroes included Darwin and Linnaeus and the French explorers of Canada. He came from a family who struggled together to make ends meet. They took in lodgers. Thoreau had been a scholarship boy at Harvard at a time when a Harvard education consisted of four years of study of classical languages. Tuition was $55. More than 10% of the annual cost of going to college was devoted to firewood, meant to keep the boys warm in their Spartan rooms. Harvard had 11 full-time professors on their staff. The library held 41,000 volumes. One of Thoreau's first literary projects was to translate Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound from the Greek. The figure of Prometheus standing up to the authority of the god Zeus appealed to Thoreau, who identified with the unjustly condemned man. Men, Thoreau observed, have made more, have made war. Men, he observed, have made war from a deeper instinct than peace. After graduating from Harvard, he was fortunate to find a job as a teacher back in Concord. It was a time of serious economic downturn throughout the country. Banks were failing everywhere. Very few of his classmates had been able to secure jobs. 
Despite this, within two weeks, Thoreau quit his teaching post. He refused to cane the students. Thoreau, who admired the discipline of the soldier, could be fierce, but he could also be tender. The Thoreau family ran a pencil manufacturing business. A practical man with mechanical skills, Thoreau conceived and developed many improvements to the process of grinding lead. Rather than the arduous song of lead for each pencil from a massive lead brick, he suggested baking the lead to the exact size needed for each pencil. He saw the method of sawing the pencil's wooden half and gluing it back together when the lead was laid inside as inefficient. And it was he who invented a technique in which a piece of wood could be drilled and the sized lead set into the hole. He also worked as a teacher, starting a modest academy for boys with his brother. He learned the art of surveying land and established a solid reputation among farmers and land brokers, working to pay off his publishing debts, earning him about a dollar for a day's work. He lectured on the subjects of literature and current events at local venues, and he wrote. Emerson encouraged him and helped him place his first essays in the new literary magazine, The Dial. In March 1845, President Tyler signed a bill annexing Texas in full knowledge of its being a declaration of war with Mexico. Slavery was going to extend to the new territory. Months later, Thoreau began to build a 10 by 15 foot shack in the woods on land recently acquired by Emerson facing Walden Pond. He was 28. On the 4th of July, he took up residence there as a kind of symbolic or laboratory experiment. This was not a withdrawal or a retreat from the world. It was not a way of undergoing hardship or experiencing deprivation. Rather too much has been made about the fact that Thoreau took his laundry home to his mother to be done. <laughs> it was an opportunity in an age of reform to reform himself, to liberate himself from his old ways, to awaken to what was real and important in life, to begin again. Church revivalists at the time were working to regenerate the soul. Socialists aimed at reforming the state. But Thoreau relished the reformation of self. I went to the woods, he would later write, because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, to discover I had not lived. Thoreau was a self-consciously simple man who had an enormously complicated character. He tried always to simplify, a succinctly Thoreauvian expression, to organize his life around basic truths. He listened to the inner voice of his conscience, a voice all people possess, but few follow. He could be willful and hard, had a strain of steel in his veins, and in the separation of mind and body, he consistently attempted to ignore the latter. On his third day at Walden, he wrote in his journal, I wish to meet the vital facts of life face to face. And so I came down here. Life, who knows what it is? He would keep up his residence for two years and two months, during which time he produced a good deal of writing on a broad range of subjects, including a week-long excursion he had taken with his brother John that would become the book A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. This would be Thoreau's first book to appear, but failing to find a publisher, he came to terms with a printer whom he would pay over time to produce the book. Much of his labor as a surveyor in later years would be spent paying off this debt for a book that sold very few copies. While living at Walden Pond, Thoreau decided to become a tax rebel. 
Actively opposed to slavery and to the tax revenues that contributed to its support, he refused to pay a much disputed Massachusetts poll tax. There were no income taxes at the time, and Thoreau did not own any land to worry about property taxes, but he was required to pay the poll tax, levied equally on all adults within the community. Thoreau declined, and so in July 1846, he was arrested and jailed. He also refused to pay the fine which would release him from jail, but without his knowledge or consent, the debt was settled and his cell door was opened. A disgruntled Thoreau was released after spending only one night in prison. His, incar his incarceration may have been brief, but it has had enduring effects through the resulting essay, Civil Disobedience. According to Thoreau, no government is entitled to automatic and unthinking obedience. Obedience has to be earned, and obedience should be withheld from an unjust government. Civil disobedience dwells on how the founding fathers rebelled against an unjust government, and how manifest destiny in the annexation of Texas was wrong because it permitted slavery in the new territory. Thoreau compares government to a machine, and the problems of government to friction. Friction is normal in a machine, but rebellion becomes justified in two cases, according to him. When the machine demands that people cooperate with injustice, and when injustice is no longer occasional, but a major characteristic of the machine. If the government requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, then, Thoreau claimed, it is right to break the law. Let your life be a counterfiction to stop the machine. More important than any government or populist authority, the individual should be the final judge of right and wrong. Civil disobedience is an analysis of the individual's relationship to the state that focuses on why men obey governmental law, even when they believe it is unjust. The essay established his reputation in the wider political world. It's one of the most influential political tracts ever written by an American. <clears throat> Mahatma Gandhi found in civil disobedience the grounding for his struggle for Indian independence. Martin Luther King Jr. read it and referred to it repeatedly during his battle for civil rights. Years later, Thoreau would return to his notes written while he was in residence in Walden Pond, turning the experience into a unique literary offering. The problem he struggled to address in the writing of Walden, or Life in the Woods, was how to express nature itself in both the green world of nature outside and its echo in the mind within. Thoreau's walks represented the Emersonian idea of nature as the externalization of the mind and the mind as the internalization of nature. The Georgics of Virgil also had a powerful impact on his ideas about writing nature, which must not be seen as an escape from society. Nature mirrors and returns the human gaze, giving the observer back his own projected humanity. From Wordsworth, Thoreau adopts the idea of the excursion as a theme for his writing, embracing the poet's search for the true path. While Emerson and the other transcendentalists praise nature, Thoreau actually walked through it. His mornings were given to reading and writing, but his afternoons were reserved for walking and observing, an activity he often repeated at twilight. As a walker, he had set out in stout shoes and gray trousers, carrying a book in which to press plants, a knife and some twine, a small spyglass, and his diary and a homemade pencil. Walden is an attempt to convert the private entries of his journal, 
such as you're about to hear, into a kind of public discourse on man's relation to the natural world. Thoreau was drawn to wildness and wilderness, subjects Emerson found fearful. He embarked on a crusade whose holy land is the wildness in himself. Most of the passages you're about to hear reflect the naturalist in Thoreau, the patient observer who knew that one could find the wild very close to home. Living at a time of America's sense of manifest destiny, Thoreau's idea of the West was something entirely other. He did not think of the expansion westward as a march of civilization. Rather, for him, the West symbolized untrammeled forests and fields, mountains and rivers. The West of which I speak, he wrote, is but another name for the wild. While Emerson held the dark unknown forces at bay outside of himself, Thoreau insisted that wildness is something existing within us. Leaving the city more and more, he turns to the wilderness to withdraw from the imposing influences of industrialization and of culture. I must walk towards Oregon, not towards Europe. Thoreau's sensibility melds the naturalist with the spiritualist. He envisioned a secular religion. I believe in the forest and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows. He was a radical thinker preaching liberation and awakening. In 1857, Thoreau met the larger-than-life abolitionist John Brown, described by Civil War historian Bruce Catton as a rover, a ne'er-do-well, wholly ineffectual in everything he did, save that he had the knack of drawing an entire nation after him on the road to unreasoning violence. Thoreau met Brown at a meeting in Boston of a secret group of prominent citizens preparing to raise money and procure rifles for a guerrilla raid against the slave power. Brown came to Concord and gave a talk about his battles against the pro-slavery factions in Kansas. Two years later, on October 16, 1859, Brown led the raid at the United States Arsenal at Harper's Ferry to initiate a slave revolt. The first reports indicated that Brown had been killed by federal troops. The writer of civil disobedience was incensed and despite mounting public opinion against Brown, made a public speech in his defense. He gave a plea for Captain John Brown on October 30th. The selectman of the town refused to ring the town bell. Thoreau rang it himself. It was a clear case for Thoreau of government putting forth its strength on the side of slavery, of injustice. The only power I recognize is that power which establishes justice in the land, never that which establishes injustice. Thoreau stood against American government, but not against the American people, the individuals with whom he credited all the good that had come since the time of the nation's founding. With his editor, Horace Greeley, Thoreau traveled to Philadelphia to meet Walt Whitman, two years his junior. I want to add that it was five years ago this week that we read Song of Myself here. Thoreau felt Whitman was a great symbol of the best of democracy and took to carrying leaves of grass around in his pocket. For his part, Whitman found Thoreau somewhat rigid and sad. After Thoreau's death, Whitman expressed his appreciation. One thing about Thoreau keeps him very near to me, his lawlessness, his dissent, his going on his own absolute road, let hell blaze all it chooses. In November 1860, Thoreau caught a severe cold that slowly deepened into consumption from which he never recovered. His lingering state left him bedridden. 
When the time came, he approached death stoically. As he lay dying, he recalled the river trip he took with his brother and murmured, now comes good sailing. A friend at his side said to him, you seem so near the brink of the dark river. I wonder how the opposite shore may appear to you. Thoreau looked at his friend and replied, one world at a time. <laughs> On May 6th, 1862, aged 44, Thoreau died. His death went relatively unnoticed. From the, from the time they met, Emerson had considered the younger man his best friend. His affection may have wavered periodically, but he never lost his belief in his younger colleague's powers. His eulogy concluded, the country knows not yet how great a son it has lost. His soul was made for the noblest society. He had, in a short life, exhausted the capabilities of this world. Wherever there is knowledge, wherever there is virtue, wherever there is beauty, he will find a home. Before he died, Thoreau wrote, for joy I can embrace the earth. I shall be delighted to be buried in it. The stories of his death are numerous. One of the best tells of how Thoreau's sister came up to him after it became clear that the end was near. Henry, have you made your peace with God? Thoreau paused, looked up at her and said, I wasn't aware that we had quarreled. <laughs> Thank you. September 2nd, 1851. I feel myself uncommonly prepared for some literary work. I'm prepared not so much for contemplation as for forceful expression. I embraced both physically and intellectually. It is not so much the music as the marching to the music that I feel. Our ecstatic estates, our ecstatic states, appear to yield so little fruit. In calmer seasons, when our talent is active, the memory of those rare moods comes to color our pictures. Thus, no life or experience goes unreported at last. If it not be solid gold, it is gold leaf which gilds the furniture of our mind. It is an experience of infinite beauty on which we unfailingly draw. Our moments of inspiration are not lost, though we have no particular poem to show for them. Those experiences have left an indelible impression and we are ever reminded of them. We are receiving our portionate of the, we are receiving our portion of the infinite, the art of life. I do not remember any page which will tell me how to spend this afternoon. I do not so much wish to know how to economize time as how to spend it, how to live, how to get the most out of life, how to extract its honey from the flower of the world. That is my everyday business. I am busy as a bee about it. I ramble over all the fields on that errand 
and I'm never so happy as when I feel myself heavy with honey and wax. I am like a bee searching the live long day for the sweets of nature. We are surrounded by a rich and fertile mystery. May we not probe it, pry into it, employ ourselves about it a little? Just after sunrise this morning, I noticed Hayden walking beside his team, slowly drawing a heavy hewn stone swung under the axle, surrounded by an atmosphere of industry, his day's work begun. Honest, peaceful industry, conserving the world, which all men respect, which society has consecrated, a reproach to all sluggards and idlers. Honest, manly toil. His brow has commenced to sweat. Honest as the day is long. One of the sacred band doing the needful but irksome drudgery. The day went by, and at evening I passed a rich man's yard who keeps many servants and foolishly spends much money while he adds nothing to the common stock. And there I saw Hayden's stone lying beside a whimsical structure intended to adorn this mansion. And the dignity forthwith departed from Hayden's labor in my eyes. How much of industry traced to the end is found thus to be subserving some rich man's foolish enterprise? There is a coarse, boisterous, money-making fellow in the north part of town who is going to build a retaining wall under the hill along the edge of his meadow. The powers have put this into his head to keep him out of mischief. And he wishes me to spend three weeks digging there with him. Now, if I do this, the community will commend me as an industrious and hardworking man. But as I chose to devote myself, as I choose to devote myself to labors which yield more real profit, though but little money, they regard me as a loafer. But I do not need this police of meaningless labor to regulate me and do not see anything absolutely praiseworthy in his undertaking, however amusing it may be to him. I prefer to finish my education at a different school. <laughs> I noticed a few small, peculiar-looking huckleberries hanging on the bushes, and tasting them, perceived they are a new kind to me. I seem to have reached a new world, so wild, a place that the very huckleberries grew hairy and are inedible. What's the need of visiting far-off mountains and bogs if half an hour's walk will carry me into such wildness and novelty? But why shouldn't wild plants grow here as well as in Labrador? Is nature so easily tamed? Is she not as primitive and vigorous here as anywhere? 
I see that there are some places within 20 miles of Boston just as wild and primitive and unfrequented as any in Labrador, as unaltered by man. I have no doubt that for a moment I experience exactly the same sensations if I were alone in a bog in Labrador, and it saves me the trouble of getting there. I felt a shock, a thrill, an agreeable surprise in one instant, for no doubt all the possible inferences were drawn with a rush in my mind. I could be in Labrador and supping at home in an hour. This beat the railroad. That wild, hairy huckleberry, inedible as it was, was equal to a domain secured to me and reaching to the South Seas. That was an unexpected harvest. I hope, neighbor, you have gathered as much from your corn and potato fields as I have got from my huckleberries. I have got my harvest of huckleberries in, and I shall be ready for Thanksgiving. It is in vain to dream of a wildness distant from ourselves. There is none such. It is the bog in our brain and bowels, the primitive vigor of nature in us that inspires that dream. I shall never find in the wilds of Labrador any greater wildness than in some recess right here in Concord. A cold white horizon sky in the north forerunner of the fall of the year. I go to bed and dream of cranberry pickers with windows partly closed with continent concentrated thought. I dream. I get my new experiences still, not at the opera, listening to the Swedish nightingale, but in the swamp, listening to the native wood thrush. It feeds your spirit now in the season of white twilights, when frosts are apprehended and edible berries are mostly gone. If I could, I would worship the parings of my nails. <laughs> I would improve every opportunity to wonder and worship as a sunflower welcomes the light. The more thrilling, wonderful, divine objects I behold in a day, the more expanded and immortal I become. You're listening to a TNS community reading of the works of Henry David Thoreau. My theme shall not be far-fetched. I will tell of homely, everyday phenomena and adventures. Friends, society, it seems to me that I have an abundance of it. There is so much I rejoice and sympathize with, and men that I never speak to but only know and think of. I love the winter with its imprisonment and its cold, for it compels the prisoner to try new fields and resources. I love having the river closed up for a season and a pause put to my boating. 
to be obliged to get my boat in. I shall launch it again in the spring with so much more pleasure. I love best to have each thing in its seasons only and enjoy doing without it at all other times. It is the greatest of all advantages to enjoy no advantage at all. I find it invariably true, the poorer I am, the richer I am. What you consider my disadvantage, I consider my advantage. While you are pleased to get knowledge and culture in many ways, I am delighted to think that I am getting rid of them. I have never got over my surprise that I should have been born into the most estimable place in all the world and in the very nick of time, too. I can see no birds, but hear one or two tree sparrows. I'm reminded of the incredible phenomenon of small birds in winter. Amid the cold, powdery snow, there will come a twittering of a flock of delicate crimson-tinged birds to sport and feed on the seeds and buds as if we're high midsummer. These crimson aerial creatures have wings which could bear them quickly to the regions of summer. But here is all the summer they want. Tropical colors, crimson breasts, all against cold white snow. What a rich contrast. Such etherealness, such delicacy in their forms, such ripeness in their colors in this stern and barren season. I'm struck by the perfect confidence of success of nature by the existence of these delicate creatures and their adaptiveness to their circumstances. I had a vision of these birds as I stood in the swamps. I saw what was familiar from a different angle, and I was charmed and haunted by it. It is only necessary to behold the least fact or phenomenon from a hair's breadth away from our habitual path or routine to be overcome and enchanted by its beauty and significance. Only, we, only what we have touched and worn is trivial. To perceive freshly with fresh senses is to be inspired. We get only transient and partial glimpses of the beauty of the world. From the right point of view, every storm and every drop in it is a rainbow. Beauty and music are not mere traits and exceptions. They are the rule and character. How does it become a man to behave toward the American government today? I answer that he cannot be associated with it without disgrace. I cannot recognize that political organization as my government, which is the slave's government also. This American government, what is it but a tradition, though a recent one, endeavoring to transmit itself unimpaired to posterity, but each instant losing some of its integrity? It has not the vitality and force of a single living man. 
for a single man can bend it to his will. It is a sort of wooden gun to the people themselves. But it is not the less necessary for this, for the people must have some complicated machinery or other, or hear its din, to satisfy that idea of government which they have. Governments show thus how successfully men can be imposed upon for their advantage. It is excellent, and we must all allow. Yet, this government never of itself furthered any enterprise but by the alacrity with which it got out of its way. It does not keep the country free. It does not settle the West. It does not educate. The character inherent in the American people has done all that has been accomplished. And it would have done somewhat more if the government had not sometimes got in its way. For government is an expedient by which men would succeed in letting one another alone. And when it is most expedient, the governed are most let alone by it. Trade and commerce, if they were not made of India rubber, would never manage to bounce over obstacles which legislators are continually putting in their way. And if one were to judge these men wholly by the effect of their actions and not partly by their intentions, they would deserve to be classed and punished with those mischievous persons who put obstructions on the railroad tracks. Government is at best but an expedient, but most governments are usually and all governments are sometimes inexpedient. The objections which have been brought against a standing army, and they are many and weighty and deserve to prevail, may also at last be brought against a standing government. The standing army is only an arm of the standing government. The government itself, which is only the mode which the people have chosen to execute their will, is equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. Witness the present Mexican War, the work of comparatively few individuals using the standing government as their tool. For in the outset, the people would not have consented to this measure. But to speak practically and as a citizen, Unlike those who call themselves no-government men, I ask for not at once no government, but at once a better government. Let every man make known what kind of government would command his respect, and that will be one step toward obtaining it. <laughs> The library, a wilderness of books. The volumes of the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, which lie so near on the shelf, are rarely opened, are effectually forgotten and not implied by our literature and newspapers. When I looked into Samuel Purchase's Pilgrims, it affected me like looking into an impassable swamp, 10 feet deep with sphagnum, where the monarchs of the forest covered with mosses and stretched along the ground, were making haste to become peat.
Those old books suggested a certain fertility, as if they were making a humus for new literatures to spring in. I heard the bellowing of bullfrogs and the hum of mosquitoes reverberating through the thick embossed covers when I had closed the book. Decayed literature makes the richest of all soils. How does it happen that I find not the works of like-minded naturalists and poets in the country, the fields and woods, those who have expressed the purest and deepest love of nature have not recorded it on the bark of trees with the lichens. They have left no memento of it here. If I would read their books, I must go to the city, so strange and repulsive both to them and to me, and deal with men and institutions with whom I have no sympathy. When I have just been there on this errand, it seems too great a price to pay for access even to the works of Homer or Chaucer or Linnaeus. I have sometimes imagined a library, a collection of the works of true poets, philosophers, naturalists, etc., deposited not in a brick or marble edifice in a crowded and dusty city, guarded by cold-blooded and methodical officials and preyed on by bookworms, but rather far away in the depths of a primitive forest like the ruins of Central America. There, you could trace a series of crumbling alcoves, the older books protecting the most modern from the elements, partially buried by the luxuriance of nature, which the heroic student could reach only after adventures in the wilderness amid wild beasts and wild men. That, to my imagination, seems a fitter place for these interesting relics than the well-preserved edifice with its well-preserved officials on the side of a city square. More terrible than lions and tigers are these services. For a year or two past, my publisher has been writing from time to time to ask what disposition should be made of the copies of A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers he still has on hand. Now he has written to suggest that he has another use for the room they occupied in his cellar. So I had them all sent to me here, and they have arrived today by express, filling the man's wagon 706 copies out of an edition of 1,000, which I bought from Monroe four years ago and have been paying for ever since and have not quite fully paid for yet. Sent to me at last, I have an opportunity to examine my purchase. The books are something more substantial than fame, as my back knows, which has borne them up two flights of stairs to a place very similar to that to which they trace their origin. Of the remaining 290-odd books, 75 were given away. The rest sold. I have now a library of nearly 900 volumes, of which over 700 I wrote myself. <laughs> Is it not well that the author should behold the fruits of his labor? 
my works are piled up on one side of my chamber, half as high as my head, my opera omnia. This is authorship. These are the works of my brain. There was just one piece of good luck in the venture. The books were tied up by the printer four years ago in stout paper wrappers and inscribed, H.D. Thoreau, Concord River, 50 copies. So, Monroe had only to cross out the word river and write Massachusetts and deliver them to the express man at once. I can see now what I write for, the result of my labors. Nevertheless, in spite of this result, sitting beside the inert mass of my works, I take up my pen tonight to record what thought or experience I may have had with as much satisfaction as ever. Indeed, I believe that this result is more inspiring and better for me than if a thousand had bought my wares. It affects my privacy less and leaves me freer. I just put a fugitive slave who has taken the name of Henry Williams into the cars for Canada. He escaped from Stafford County, Virginia to Boston last October, has been at Shadrach's place, had been corresponding through an agent with his master, who was his father, about buying himself, his master asking $600. But he having been able to raise only 500, he heard that there was a writ out for him that he was a fugitive, and he was informed by his fellow servants and his employer that Augie Burns and others of the police had come looking for him when he was out. Accordingly, he fled to Concord last night on foot, bringing a letter to our family for Mr. Lovejoy of Cambridge. He lodged with us and waited in the house till funds were collected with which to forward him, an intelligent and well-behaved man. I intended to dispatch him at noon through to Burlington, but when I went to buy his ticket, I saw someone at the depot who looked and behaved so much like a Boston policeman that I did not venture that time. The slave said that he could guide himself by many other stars than the North Star, whose rising and setting he knew. They steered for the North Star even when it appeared to be to them in the South. They frequently followed the telegraph poles when there was no railroad. The slaves bring many superstitions from Africa. Fugitives sometimes carry a clump of turf in their hats superstitiously, thinking their success depends upon it. saw a very large white ash tree, three and a half feet in diameter, which was struck by lightning at about 4 p.m. on the 22nd. The lightning apparently struck the top of the tree, scorched 
the bark and leaves for 10 or 15 feet downward, and then begin to strip off the bark and enter the wood, making a ragged, narrow furrow or crack, till reaching one of the upper limbs, it apparently divided, descending on both sides, and entering deeper and deeper into the wood. At the first general branching, it took a full possession of the tree in its center and tossed off all the main limbs, marking, making holes in the ground where they struck. It traveled down the midst of the trunk to the earth, where it apparently exploded, and rending the trunk into six segments whose tops 10 or 20 feet long, rayed out on every side, leaving the ground bare directly under where the tree had stood. The main body of the tree was completely stripped of bark, which was east in every direction, which was cast in every direction 200 feet. Large pieces of the inside of the tree 15 feet long, were hurled with tremendous force in various directions, one into the side of a shed, smashing it, another burying itself in a woodpile. The heart of the tree lay by itself. <clears throat> the lightning appeared to have gone through the roots into the earth, making a furrow like a plow, passing through the cellar of the neighboring house about 30 feet away, scorching the tin milk pans, throwing dirt into the milk, uh, and splitting some planks over there. The windows in the house were broken, and the inhabitants knocked down by the concussion. All this was accomplished in an instant by a kind of fire out of the heavens called lightning or thunderbolt, accompanied with a crashing sound. The ancients called it, and for what purpose? The ancients called it Jove's bolt, with which he punished the guilty, and we moderns understand it no better. There was displayed a titanic force here, some of that force which made and can unmake the world. Is this the character of a wild beast, or is it guided by intelligence and mercy? If we trust our natural impressions, it is a manifestation of brutish force, or vengeance, more or less tempered with justice. Yet it is our own consciousness of sin, probably, which suggests the idea of vengeance. Why should trees be struck? It is not enough to say because they're in the way. All the phenomena of nature needs to be seen from the point of view of wonder and awe, like lightning. And on the other hand, the lightning itself needs to be regarded with serenity. It's, it needs to be read serenity as the most familiar and innocent phenomenon of nature are. Men are probably nearer to the essential truth in their superstitions than in their science. I love nature 
because she is not a man, but a retreat from him. None of his institutions control or pervade her. There is a different kind of right that prevails. In her midst, I can be glad with an entire gladness. If this world were all man, I could not stretch myself. I should lose all hope. He is constrained. She is freedom for me. He makes me wish for another world. She makes me content with this one. I have a room all to myself. It is nature. It is a place beyond the jurisdiction of human governments. There are two worlds, the post office and nature. (laughs) And I know them both. (laughs) I continually forget mankind and their institutions. Live each season as it passes, everyone. Breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruit, and resign yourself to the influences of each. In August, live on berries, not dried meats, as if you were on shipboard, making your way through a waste ocean or in a northern desert. Be blown on by all the winds. Open all your pores and bathe in all the tides of nature, in all her streams and oceans at all seasons. Nature is but another name for health, and the seasons are but different states of health. I am inclined to think bathing almost one of the necessaries of life, but it is surprising how indifferent some are to it. (laughs) What a coarse, foul, busy life we lead compared even with the South Sea Islanders. Truant boys steal away to bathe, but the farmers, who most need it, rarely dip their bodies into the streams or ponds. Minot was telling me last night that he had thought of bathing when he had done his hoeing, of taking some soap and going down to Walden, giving himself a good scrubbing. But something prevented it, and now he'll go unwashed to the harvesting, even till the next hoeing is over. Bathing is an undescribed luxury. To feel the wind blow on your body, the water flow on you and lave you is a rare physical enjoyment this hot day. The water is remarkably warm here, especially in the shallows, warm to the hand. The pond water being so warm made the water of the brook feel very cold. I could feel it with my feet. And when I thrust my arm down where it was only two feet deep, My arm was in the warm water of the pond, but my hand in the cold water of the brook. Now for another fluvial walk. There is always a current of air above the water blowing up or down the course of the river, so that this is the coolest highway. Divesting yourself of all clothing but your shirt and hat to protect your exposed parts from the sun You are prepared for the fluvial excursion. You choose what depth you like. 
tucking your toga higher or lower as you take the deep middle of the road or the shallow sidewalks. I wonder if any Roman emperor ever indulged in such luxury as this of walking up and down a river in torrid weather with only a hat to shade his head. What were the baths of Caracalla to this? A clear, cold, windy afternoon. The cat crackles with electricity when you stroke her and the fur rises to the touch. This is November of the hardest kind. Bare, frozen ground covered with pale brown or straw-colored herbage. A strong, cold, cutting northwest wind which makes me seek to cover my ears. A perfectly clear and cloudless sky. The cattle in the fields have a cold, shrunken, shaggy look. Their hair standing out every way, as if with electricity, like the cats. Ditches and pools are fast skimming over, and the few slate-colored snowbirds with thick, shuffling twitter flit from bush to bush in the otherwise deserted pastures. This month taxes a walker's resources more than any. For my part, I should sooner think of going into quarters in November than later in the winter. If you do feel any fire at this season out of doors, you may depend on it, it is your own. Not only the fingers cease to do their office, but there is often the benumbing of the faculties generally. You can hardly screw up your courage to take a walk when all is thus tightly locked or frozen up and so little is to be seen in field or wood. Nature has herself become like the few fruits which she still affords, a very thick-shelled nut with the shrunken meat within. I am obliged to go abroad, willfully and against my inclinations at first. The prospect looks so barren, so many springs are frozen up, not a flower perchance, but few birds left, not a companion abroad in all these fields for me. I am slow to go forth. I seem to anticipate a fruitless walk. I think to myself hesitatingly, shall I go there or there or there? and cannot make up my mind to any route, all seem so unpromising, mere surface walking and fronting the cold wind, so that I have to force myself to it often and at random. But then I am often unexpectedly compensated, and the thinnest yellow light of November is more warming and exhilarating than any wine they tell of. And then the small bit of November contributes then the small bit which November contributes becomes equal in value to the bounty of summer. I may meet with something which interests me, and immediately it is as warm as in July. In my experience, I have found nothing so truly impoverishing as what is called wealth. With the command of greater means than you have before possessed, you inevitably acquire a more expensive habit of living, and even the very same necessaries and comforts cost you more than they once did. Instead of gaining, 
you have lost some independence. And if your income should be suddenly lessened, you would find yourself poor, though possessed of the same means which once made you rich. Within the last five years, I have had the command of a little more money than in the previous five years, for I have sold some books and been paid for some lectures. Yet I am not a whit better fed or clothed, or warmed or sheltered, not a whit richer, except that I have been less concerned about my living. But perhaps my life has been the less serious for it, and to balance it, I feel like now that there is the possibility of failure. Before, I was much likelier to take the town upon my shoulders. They would say that I had gained an independence, but I think I have lost some of my independence. If you wish to give a man a sense of poverty, give him a thousand dollars. The next hundred dollars he gets will not be worth more than the ten dollars he used to get. In a printed letter from Washington the other day, the Secretary for the Association for the Advancement of Science requests me, as he probably has thousands of others, to fill in the blank space concerning certain questions. Among them, the most important one was what branch of science I was specially interested in, using the term science in the most comprehensive sense possible. Though I could state to a select few that Department of Human Inquiry which engages me and should be rejoiced at an opportunity to do so, I felt that it would be to make myself the laughing stock of the scientific community to describe or attempt to describe to them that branch of science which specially interests me, inasmuch as I do not believe as in as much as they do not believe in a science which deals with the higher law. So I was obliged to speak to their condition and to describe to them that poor part of me which alone they can understand. The fact is, I'm a mystic, I'm a transcendentalist, and a natural philosopher to boot. Now I think of it, I should have told them at once that I was a transcendentalist. That would have been the shortest way of telling them that they would not understand my explanations. How absurd that though I probably stand as near to nature as any of them, and am by constitution as good an observer as most, yet a true account of my relation to nature should excite their ridicule only. If it had been the secretary of an association of which Plato or Aristotle was the president, I should not have hesitated to describe my studies at once and particularly. You're listening to a TNS community reading of the works of Henry David Thoreau. Early in the morning, while all things are crisp with frost, men come with fishing reels and let their lines down through the ice to catch pickerel. Ah, the pickerel of Walden. When I see them lying on the ice or or in the well which the fisherman cuts in the ice, I'm always surprised by their rare beauty, as if they were fabulous fishes. They are so foreign to our conquered life, foreign as Arabia. They possess a quite dazzling and transcendent beauty, which separates them by a wide interval from the cadaverous cod and haddock whose fame is trumpeted in our streets. They're not green like the pines, nor gray like the stones, nor blue like the sky. 
but they have, to my eyes, yet rarer colors, like flowers and precious stones, as if they were the pearls or the animalized crystals of the Walden water. They are water all over and all through. They are themselves small Waldens in the animal kingdom. It is surprising that they are caught here, that in this deep and capacious spring, far beneath the rattling teams and tinkling sleighs that travel the Walden Road, this great gold and emerald fish swims. Here, a man is fishing for pickerel with, with perch for bait. Easily, with a few convulsive quirks, the pickerel gives up its watery ghost. Like a mortal translated before his time to the thin air of heaven. I got my boat in and turned it over on the bank. It made me sweat to wheel it home through the snow. I am so unused to the work of late. Then I walked up the railroad and saw the clear straw-colored grass and some weeds contrasting with the snow they rise above. I saw little on this walk. I saw Melvin's lank, bluish-white, black-spotted hound, and Melvin with his gun near, going home in the evening. He follows hunting in our tame fields, praise be to him, as regularly as the farmers follow farming. Persistent genius. How I respect him and thank him for him. I trust the Lord will provide us with another Melvin when he is gone. How good of him to follow his own bent and not continue at the Sabbath school all of his days. What a wealth he thus becomes to the neighborhood. I thank my stars for Melvin. I think of him with gratitude when I am going to sleep, grateful that he exists, that Melvin who is such a trial to his mother. Yet he is agreeable to me as a tinge of russet on the hillside. I would fain give thanks morning and evening for my blessing. Awkward, gawky, loose hung, dragging his legs after him. He is my contemporary and neighbor. He is one tribe, I am another, and we are not at war. I saw but little in my walk. I saw no bird, only a crow's track in the snow. As for the sensuality in Whitman's Leaves of Grass, I do not so much wish that it was not written as that men and women were so pure that they could read it without harm. <laughs> 200 years ago is about as great an antiquity as we can comprehend or often have to deal with. It is nearly as good as 2,000 to our imaginations. It carries us back to the days of Aborigines and the Pilgrims, beyond the limits of oral testimony, to history which begins already to be enameled with the gloss of fable. And we do not quite believe what we read, to a strange style of writing and spelling and of expression, to those ancestors whose names we do not know, and to whom we are related only as we are to race generally. It is the age of our various, very oldest houses and cultivated trees. When we read the history of the world, centuries look cheap to us, and we find we had doubted if the hundred years preceding the life seemed to be as great an antiquity 
as 100 years ago. We are inclined to think of all Romans who lived within 500 years BC as contemporaries of each other, yet time moved at the same deliberate pace as now. How is it that what is actually present and transpiring is commonly perceived by the understanding without halo or the blue enamel or intervening air? But let it be past or to come, and it is once idealized. It is not simply the understanding now, but the imagination that takes cognizance. The imagination requires a long range. It is the faculty of the poet to see the present things as if distant or universally significant. The excursions of the imagination of so boundless the limits of town are so petty. You cannot read any genuine history without perceiving that our interest depends not on the subjects, but on the man on the manner in which he treats the subject and the importance he gives it. Whenever men have lived there is a story to be told, and it depends chiefly on the storyteller or historian whether that is interesting or not. You are simply a witness on the stand to tell what you know about your neighbors and neighborhood. A feeble writer and without genius must have what he thinks a great theme, which we are already interested in, through the accounts of others. But a genius, a Shakespeare, for example, would make the history of his parish more interesting than another's history of the world. It is for no particular item in the tax bill that I refuse to pay it. I simply wish to refuse allegiance to the state, to withdraw and stand aloof from it effectually. I do not care to trace the course of my dollar, but I am concerned to trace the effects of my allegiance. In fact, I quietly declare war with the state, after my fashion, the authority of government, even such as I am willing to submit to, is still an impure one. To be strictly just, it must have the sanction and consent of the governed. It can have no pure right over my person and property, but what I concede to it, the progress from an absolute to limited monarchy, from a limited monarchy to a democracy, is a progress toward a true respect for the individual. Is a democracy such as we know it, the last improvement possible in government? Is it not possible to take a step further towards recognizing and organizing the rights of man? There will never be a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its own power and authority are derived and treats him accordingly. I please myself with imagining a state which can at least afford to be just to all men and to treat the individual with respect as a neighbor, which would not even think it inconsistent with its own repose if a few were to live aloof from it, not meddling with it nor embraced by it, who fulfilled all the duties of neighbors and fellow men. A state which bore this kind of fruit would prepare the way for a still more perfect and glorious state, which I have also imagined, but not yet seen anywhere.
To Fairhaven, bee hunting. A fine, clear day after the coolest night we have had. We were earnest to go this week before the flowers were gone, and we feared the frosty night might make the bees slow to come forth. After we got to Baker Farm, the first thing was to find some flowers and catch some honeybees. We followed up the bank of the brook for some distance, but the golden rods were all dried up there, and the asters on which we expected to find them were very scarce. We had no better, better luck at Clematis Brook. Not a honeybee could we find. We concluded we were too late, the weather too cold. We set out to return after eating our lunch. By the roadside at Walden, on a sunny hillside sloping to the pond, we saw a large mass of goldenrod and aster, comparatively fresh. We found it to be resounding with the hum of bees. It was about one o'clock. There were far more flowers than we had seen elsewhere. Here were bees in great numbers, both bumblebees and honeybees, as well as butterflies and wasps and flies. So, pouring a mixture of honey and water onto an empty honeycomb in a tin box and holding the lid of the tin box in one hand, we proceeded to catch the honeybees by shutting them in suddenly between the lid of the tin box and the circular bottom of a wooden box, cutting off the flower stem with the edge of the lid for, at the same time. Then, the wooden box was wholly removed and the bees were left feeding and sucking upon the honey in broad daylight. In from two or three minutes, one bee had loaded himself and commenced to leaving the box. He would buzz round a foot or more, and then sometimes, finding that he was too heavily loaded, alight again on the box to empty himself or clean his feet. Then, starting once more, he would begin to circle around irregularly, at first in small circle, only a foot or two in diameter, as if to examine the premises that he might know them again. At length, rising higher and higher, and circling wider and wider and swifter and swifter, his orbit was 10 or 12 feet in diameter and as much from the ground. It was very difficult to follow him, especially if you looked against a wood or the hill. You had to lie low to fetch him against the sky. Then, in a minute or less from his first starting, he darts off in a beeline. That is, as far as I could see him looking against the sky and you had to follow his whole career very attentively indeed to see when and where he went off at a tangent in a waving or sinuous line toward his nest. We set forth as many as a dozen bees, which flew in about three directions, but all toward the village or where we knew there were hives. They did not fly absolutely straight, but within three or four feet of the same course for as far as we could see. Those belonging to one hive all had to digress to get around an apple tree. In less than half an hour, the first returned to the box, and so they all came back, one after another, loaded themselves again and departed. But now they went off with very little preliminary circling, as if assured of their course. Furnished with little boxes of red, blue, 
green, yellow, and white paint in dry powder, we sprinkled a little of the red powder on the back of one bee with a stick while he was feeding, gave him a little dab. The powder settled down amid the fuzz of his back and gave him a distinct red jacket. He went off like most of them towards some hives about three quarters of a mile distant, and we observed the time of his departure. In just 22 minutes, Red Jacket came back with enough of the powder still on his back to mark him plainly. He may have gone more than three quarters of a mile. At any rate, he had a headwind to contend with while laden. They fly swiftly and surely to their nests, never resting by the way. And I was just surprised at the distance with which the village bees go for flowers. The rambler in the most remote woods and pastures little thinks that the bees, which are humming so industriously on the rare wild flowers he is plucking for his herbarium, are, like himself, ramblers from the village, perhaps from his own yard, come to get their honey for his hives. I feel the richer for this experience. It taught me that even insects in my path are not loafers, but have their special errands. Not merely and vaguely in this world, but in each hour, each is about its business. If then there are any sweet flowers still lingering on the hillside, it is known to the bees, both of the forest and the village. Our red jacket had performed the voyage in safety. No bird had picked him up. Now is the time to hunt bees and take them up. When the combs are full of honey and before the flowers are so scarce that they begin to consume the honey they have stored. In 1723, Paul Dudley wrote the Royal Society that the Indians had no word for bee. They called it the Englishman's fly. Indigenous animals are inexhaustibly interesting to us. How much more than the indigenous man of America, so much more like ourselves than they are unlike, they inhabited the shores before us. We wish to know particularly what men, matter of men they were, how they live here, their relation to nature, their arts, their customs, their fancies and superstitions. They paddled over these waters, they wandered in these woods, and they had their fancies and their beliefs connected with the sea and the forest, which concern us quite as much as the tables, the fables of Oriental nations do. Some have spoken slightingly of Indians as a race possessing so little skill and wit, so low in the scale of humanity, and so brutish that they hardly deserve to be remembered, using only the terms miserable, pitiful, and the like. It frequently happens that the historian, though he professes more humanity than the trapper, mountain man, or gold digger, really exhibits and practices a similar inhumanity, wielding a pen instead of a rifle. One tells you with more contempt than pity that the Indian has no religion. And this seems to mean something important to the shallow-brained and the bigoted. Pray how much more religion has the historian. 
It is the spirit of humanity working through a man which animates both so-called savages and civilized nations and not the man expressing himself that interests us most. A so-called savage tribe is generally far more just than a single civilized man. My first botany, as I remember, was Bigelow's Plants of Boston and Vicinity, which I began to use about 20 years ago, looking chiefly for the popular names and the short references to the locations of plants, even without any regard to the plant. I also learned the names of many, but without using any system, I forgot them soon. I was not inclined to pluck flowers, I preferred them to leave them where they were. I liked them best there. I was never in the least interested in plants in the house. But from year to year, we look at nature with new eyes. About a half a dozen years ago, I found myself attending to plants with more method, looking out the name of each one and remembering it. I, I began to bring them home in my hat. A straw hat with a scaffold lining to it, which I call my botany box. I never use any other. And when some whom I visited were evidently surprised at, at, at his dilapidated look, I deposited in the front entry table and assured them that it was not so much my, my hat as my botany box. I remember gazing with interest at the swamps about those days and wondering if I would ever attain such familiarity with plants that I should know the species of every tweed and every leaf, that I should be acquainted with every plant summer and winter that I saw. Though I knew most of the flowers, and there were not so many in particular swamps, more than a half dozen that I did not know, yet this made it seem like a maze of a thousand strange species. I even thought of commencing one at one end and looking faithfully and laboriously through until I knew them all. I little thought that in a year or two I should have attained to such knowledge. Still, I never studied botany and I still do not today. Systematically, the most natural system is still so artificial. I wanted to know my plant neighbors, if possible, to get a little nearer to them. I soon found myself observing when they first blossom and lift, and follow it up early and late, far and near, several years in succession, running into different sides of town and into neighboring towns, often between 20 and 30 miles in a day. I often visited a particular plant four or five miles distant, half a dozen times within a fortnight that I might know exactly when it opened. What a perfect chest the chestnut is packed in. 
With what such wonderful care, nature has secluded and defended these nuts as if they were her most precious fruits, while diamonds are left to take care of themselves. First, it bristles all over with sharp green prickles, some nearly half an inch long, like a hedgehog rolled into a ball. These rest on a thick, stiff, bark-like rind, one-sixteenth to one-eighth of an inch thick, which, again, is most daintily lined with a kind of silvery fur or velvet plush, one-sixteenth of an inch thick, even rising in a ridge between the nuts, like the lining of a casket in which the most precious commodities are kept. The chest is packed quite full, Half-developed nuts are the waste paper used in the packing to fill the vacancies. At last, frost comes to unlock this chest. It alone holds the true key. Such is the cradle, thus daintily lined, in which they have been rocked in their infancy. See how tenderly it has been reared before its green and tender skin hardens into a shell. The light comes in and proceeds to paint the nuts that clear, handsome, reddish-brown, which we call chestnut. Nowadays, the brush that paints chestnut is very active. It is entering into every open burr over the stretching forest tops for hundreds of miles, without horse or ladder, putting on rapid coats of this wholesome color. Otherwise, the boys would not think they had got perfect chestnuts. Within itself, each individual nut is lined with a reddish velvet, as if to preserve the seed from injury in falling and from sudden damp and cold, and within that, a thin white skin enwraps the germ. <coughs> Thus it is lining within lining, six coverings at least before you reach the contents. I find my account in this continuous monotonous labor of picking chestnuts all the afternoon, brushing the leaves aside without looking up, absorbed in all that and forgetting things a while. My eye is educated to discover anything on the ground. It is probably much wholesomer to look at the ground than at the heavens. As I go, stooping and brushing the leaves aside by the hour, I am not thinking of chestnuts merely but I find myself humming a thought of more significance. The occupation affords a certain broad pause and opportunity to start again afterwards, to turn over a new leaf. I hear someone thrumming a guitar. It reminds me of moments that I have lived. What a comment on our life is the least strain of music. It lifts me up above all the dust and mire of the universe. I soar or hover with clean skirts over the field of my life. It is ever life within life in concentric spheres. 
when a strain of music is heard, this field where I am leading my humdrum life is seen to be the field of some unrecorded crusade or tournament, the thought of which excites in us an ecstasy of joy. The way in which I am affected by this faint strumming alerts me to the fact that there is still some health and immortality in the springs of me. What an elixir this sound is. I, who but lately lived under a dish cover, live now under the heavens. It releases me. It bursts my bonds. Perhaps all our lives are, comparatively speaking, a stereotyped despair. That is, we never, at any time, realize the full grandeur of our destiny. We forever and ever and habitually underrate our fate. I am, of course, hopelessly ignorant and unbelieving until some divinity stirs within me. 99 one-hundredths of our lives, we are mere hedgers and ditchers. But from time to time, we meet with reminders of our destiny. We hear kindred vibrations, music. And we put out our dormant feelers to the limits of the universe. We attain to a wisdom that passes understanding. The stable continents undulate. The hard and fixed become fluid. When I hear music, I fear no danger. I am invulnerable. I see no foe. There are infinite degrees of life, from that which is next to sleep and death, to that which is forever awake and immortal. You're listening to a TNS community reading of the works of Henry David Thoreau. I have come out this afternoon a cranberrying, chiefly to gather some of the small cranberry, which Emerson says is the common cranberry of the north of Europe. I thought I should like to have a dish of this sauce of my own gathering on the table at Thanksgiving. I could hardly make up my mind to come this way. It seemed so poor an object to spend the afternoon on. I kept foreseeing a lame conclusion, how I should cross the great fields and then retrace my steps no richer than before. In fact, I expected little of this walk, yet it did pass through my mind that somehow, on this very account, my small expectation, it would turn out well, as also the advantage of having some purpose, however small, to be accomplished, of letting your deliberate wisdom and foresight to some extent direct and control your steps. I have always reaped unexpected and incalculable advantages from carrying out at last, however tardily, any little enterprise which my genius suggested to me long ago as a thing to be done, some step to be taken, however slight, out of the usual course. Many of our days should be spent carrying out deliberately and faithfully the hundred little purposes which every man's genius must have suggested to him. Let not your life be wholly without an object, though it be only to ascertain the flavor of a cranberry, for it will not only be the quality of an insignificant berry that you will have tasted, but the flavor of your life to that extent and it will be such a sauce as no wealth can buy. 
Both a conscious and unconscious life are good. Neither is good exclusively, for both have the same source. The wisely conscious life springs out of an unconscious suggestion. I have found my account in having prepared beforehand a list of questions which I would get answered, not trusting to my interest at the moment, and can then travel with the most profit. Indeed, it is by obeying the suggestions of a higher light within you that you escape from yourself and, in the transit, as it were, with the unworn side of your eye, travel totally new paths. What is that pretended life that does not take up a claim, that does not occupy ground, that sits on a bank looking over a bog, singing its desires? However, it was not with such blasting expectations as these that I entered the swamp. I saw bags of cranberries just gathered and tied up on the banks of the swamp. They must have been raked out of the water, now so high, before they should rot. I left my shoes and stockings on the bank far off and waded a long way bare-legged to the soft, open, sphagnous center of the swamp. I waded quite round the swamp for an hour, my bare feet in the cold water beneath, and it was a relief to place them on the warmer surface of the sphagnum. I filled one pocket with each variety, but sometimes, being confused, crossed hands and put them into the wrong pocket. I enjoyed this cranberrying very much, notwithstanding the wet and cold, and the swamp seemed to be yielding its crop to me, for there are none else to pluck it or value it. I am the only person in the township who regards them or knows them, and I do not regard them in light of their pecuniary value. I have no doubt I felt richer waiting there with my two pockets full, treading on wonders at every step, than any farmer going to market with a hundred bushels he has hired to be raked. I got further and further away from the town every moment, and my good genius seemed to have smiled on me, leading me hither, and then the sun suddenly came out clear and bright, but it did not warm my feet. I would gladly share my gains, take one or twenty into partnership, and get this swamp with them, but I do not know an individual whom this berry cheers and nourishes as it does me. But I love them even better, partly for that reason. I saw at Ricketson's a young woman, Miss Kate Brady, 20 years old, her father an Irishman, a worthless fellow, her mother a smart Yankee. The daughter formerly did sewing, but now keeps school for a livelihood. She was born at the Brady House, where she lived until she was 12 years old, helping her father in the field. There she rode horse to plow and was knocked off the horse by apple tree boughs, kept sheep, caught fish, etc. I never heard a girl or woman express so strong a love for nature. She purposes to return to that lonely ruin and dwell, there and dwell there alone since her mother and sister will not accompany her. She says that she knows all about farming and keeping sheep and spinning and weaving, though it would puzzle her to shingle the old house. There she thinks she can live free. I was pleased to hear of her plans because they were quite cheerful and original growing out of her love for nature. A strong love for outward nature is singularly rare among both men and women. The scenery immediately about her homestead is quite ordinary, 
yet she appreciates and can use that part of the universe as no other being can. Her own sex, so tamely bred, only jeer at her for entertaining such an idea, but she has a strong head and a love for good reading, which may carry her through. I would by no means discourage, not nor yet particularly encourage her, for I would have her so strong as to succeed in spite of all ordinary discouragements. That nature, which to one is a stark and ghastly solitude, is a sweet, tender, and genial society. There is nothing so poetic as a walk in the woods and fields. Alone in distant woods or fields, I come to myself. I once more feel myself grandly related, and that cold and solitude are friends of mine. I suppose that this value, in my case, is equivalent to what others get by church-going and prayer. I thus dispose of the superfluous and see things as they are, grand and beautiful. I have told many that I walk every day about half the daylight, but I think they do not believe it. I wish to get the conquered, the Massachusetts, the America, out of my head and be a sane part of every day. I wish to know something. I wish to be made better. I wish to forget. And therefore, I come out of, to these solitudes where the problem of existence is simplified. I enter some glade in the woods, perchance where few dry leaves alone lift themselves above the surface of the snow. And it is as if I have come to an open window. I am not satisfied with ordinary windows. I must have a true skylight. My true skylight is on the outside of the village. I see out and around myself. Our skylights are thus far away from the ordinary resorts of men. It is as if I always met in those places some grand, serene, immortal, infinitely encouraging, though invisible, companion, and walked with him. There, at last, my nerves are steadied. My senses and my mind do their office. I am aware that most of my neighbors would think it a hardship to be compelled to linger here one hour, especially this bleak day. And yet I receive the sweet and ineffable compensation for it. It is the most agreeable thing I do. Truly, my coins are uncurrent with them. Think what a change, unperceived by many, has within a month come over the landscape. 
Then the general universal hue was green. Now see those brilliant scarlet and glowing yellow trees in the lowlands a mile off. Or see that crowd in the swamp half a mile through, all vying with one another, a blaze of glory. We are not prepared to believe that the earth would present a bird's eye, such distinct masses of bright color. A great painter is at work. I just read Ruskin's Modern Painters. I'm I'm disappointed in not finding it more out-of-door book, for I have heard that such was his character, but his title might have warned me. He does not describe nature as nature, but as Turner painted her. And though the work betrays that he has given a close attention to nature, it appears to have been with an artist and a critic's design. How much is written about nature as somebody has portrayed her? How little about nature as she is and chiefly concerns us, i.e. how much prose, how little poetry. It has come to this that the lover of art is one and the lover of nature is another, though true art is but the expression of our love of nature. It is monstrous when one cares little about trees but much about Corinthian columns, and yet this is exceedingly common. I have collected and split up now quite a pile of driftwood perhaps half or three-quarters of a tree. It is more amusing not only to collect this with my boat and bring it up from the river on my back, but to split it also than it would be to speak to a farmer for a load of wood and saw and split that. Each stick I deal with has a history, and I read it as I am handling it. And last of all, I remember my adventures in getting it while it is burning in the winter evening. That is the most interesting part of its history. It is made part of a fence or a bridge, or has been rooted out of a clearing and bears marks of fire on it. When I am splitting it, I study the effects of water on it. And if it is a stump, the curiously winding grain by which it separates into so many prongs. I find that a dry oak stump will split pretty easily in the direction of its diameter, but not at right angles with it or along its circles of growth. Some of my acquaintances have been wondering why I take all these pains bringing some nearly three miles by water, and have suggested various reasons for him. In my despair of making them understand me, I tell them it is a profound secret. Yet I did hint to them that one reason was that I wanted to get it. I take some satisfaction in eating my food as well as in being nourished by it. I feel well at dinner time as well as after it. The world will never find out why you don't love to have your bed tucked up for you, why you will be so perverse. I enjoy drinking water more at a clear spring than out of a goblet at a gentleman's table. I like best the bread which I have baked, the garment which I have made, the shelter which I have constructed, the fuel which I have gathered. A great part of our troubles are literally domestic or originate in the house and from living indoors. I could write an essay to be titled Out of Doors and undertake a crusade against houses. What a different thing Christianity is when preached to the housebred and to a party who live out of doors. A sermon is needed on on economy of fuel. What right has neighbor to burn ten cords of wood when I burn only one, thus robbing our half-naked town of this precious covering? 
Is he so much colder than I? It is expensive to maintain him in our midst. One man makes a little of the, of the driftwood of the river of the, dead and, and of the dead and refuse of the forest, and nature rejoices in him. Another requires ten cords of the best young white oak or hickory, and he is commonly esteemed a virtuous man. He who burns the most wood on his hearth is the least warmed by the sight of it. <laughs> Leave the trim wood lots to widows and orphan girls. Let men tread gently through nature. <clears throat> Found a good stone jug, small in size, floating in the water, stopple up. I drew the cork and smelled molasses and water, or something which it had contained. It was probably some haymaker's jug left in the grass, which the recent rise of the river had floated off. It will do to put with the white pitcher I found and keep flowers in. Thus I get my furniture. <laughs> I deal so much with my fuel. What with finding it, loading it, conveying it home, sawing and splitting it. I get so many values out of it. And warmed in so many ways by it. When I feel it, I'm reminded of all my adventures. I just put on a stick, and I had my choice. In the box of gray chestnut, a black snag of an oak stump, white pine top, gray and round, and stubs of limbs, or else splinters from an old bridge plank. I feel disposed to get wood for any three or four of my neighbors who really want the fuel and will appreciate the act now that I have supplied myself. There was a fat pine plank, heavy as lead, that I gave to my aunt for kindling. I affect what would commonly be called a mean and miserable way of living. I thoroughly sympathize with all savages and gypsies insofar as they merely assert the original right of man to the productions of nature and a place in her. The highest law gives a thing to him who can use it. I do not know how to entertain someone who can't take long walks. <laughs> the first thing that suggests itself is to get a horse and haul them. But that brings us at once into contact with stablers and dirty harnesses, and I don't get over my ride for a long time. I give up my forenoon to them, and we get along pretty well. The very elasticity of the air and the promise of the day abetting me. But there they are, as heavy as dumplings by mid-afternoon. If they can't walk, why don't they take an honest nap and let me go in the afternoon. They alarm me by the evident disposition to sit in the midst of the most glorious Indian summer afternoon. There they sit, breaking their chairs and wearing out the house with their backs to the light, taking no note of the lapse of time. I had gone but 
little way on the old Carlisle Road when I saw Brooks Clark, who is now about 80 and bent like a bow, hastening along the road barefooted, as usual, with an axe in his hand. He, had, he was in haste, perhaps, on account of the cold wind on his bare feet. When he got up to me, I saw that besides the axe in one hand, he had his shoes in the other filled with apples and a dead robin. He, he stopped and talked with me for a few moments. He said that we had had a noble autumn and might now expect some cold weather. I asked if he had found the robin dead. No, he said. He found it with its wing broken and had killed it. He also added that he had found some apples in the woods, and as he hadn't anything to carry them in, he put them in his shoes. They were queer-looking trays to carry fruit in, How many he had got in along the toes, I do not know. I noticed, too, that his pockets were stuffed with them. He appeared to have been out on a scout this gusty afternoon to see what he could find, as the youngest boy might. It pleased me to see this cheery old man with such a feeble hold on life, bent almost double, thus enjoying the evening of his days. Far be it from me to call it avarice or penury, this childlike delight in finding something in the woods or fields and carrying it home in the October evening as a trophy to be added to his winter's store. Oh, no. He was happy to be nature's pensioner and bird-like in his picking up of his life. Better his robin than your turkey. (laughs) His shoe full of apples than your barrels full. His will be sweeter and suggest a better tale, like an old squirrel shuffling to his hole with a nut. This old man's cheeriness was worth a thousand of the church's sacraments. It was better than a prayerful mood. It proves to me old age as tolerable, as happy, as infancy, I was glad of an occasion to suspect that this afternoon he had not been at work, but living somewhat after my own fashion, had been out to see what nature had for him, and now was hastening home to a burrow he knew where he could warm his old feet. If he had been a young man, he would probably have thrown away his apples and put on his shoes when he saw me coming, for shame. But old age is manlier. It has learned to live, makes fewer apologies. This seems a very manly man. Having stood quite still on the edge of the ditch, close to the north edge of the maple swamp some time, and heard a slight rustling near me from time to time, I looked round and saw a mink under the bushes within a few feet. It was pure reddish-brown above, with a blackish and somewhat bushy tail, a blunt nose, and somewhat innocent-looking head. It crept along toward me and around me in a semicircle, snuffing the air and pausing several times to look at me. Part of its course, when nearest me, was in the water of the ditch. It then crawled away slowly, and I saw by the ripple where it had taken to the ditch again. Perhaps it was after a frog, like myself. The naturalist accomplishes a great deal by patience, more perhaps than by activity, 
he must take his position and then wait and watch. It is equally true of quadrupeds and reptiles, sit still in the midst of their haunts. Frogs are strange creatures. One would describe them as peculiarly wary and timid, another as equally bold and imperturbable. All that is required in studying them is patience. You will sometimes walk a long way along a ditch and hear twenty or more leap in, one after another before you, and see where they rippled the water without getting sight of one of them. You conquer them by superior patience and immovableness, not by quickness, but by slowness, not by heat, but by coldness. You sit down on the bank and wait patiently for his reappearance. After a quarter of an hour or more, he is sure to rise to the surface and put out his nose quietly without making a ripple, eyeing you steadily. At length, he becomes as curious about you as you can be about him. He suddenly hops straight toward you, pausing within a foot, and takes a near and leisurely view of you. You might now scratch its nose with your finger and examine it to your heart's content, for it has now become as imperturbable as it was shy before. One morning, I went out my field across to the river, and there, beside that little old mud pond, was David Henry. But he wasn't doing nothing but just standing there, looking at that pond. And when I came back at noon, there he was, just standing there, just looking down into that pond. And then when I came back at dinner, he was there again. There he was, just standing there, David Henry, like he'd been there all day, gazing down into that pond. And I stopped and I look at him and I says, David Henry, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he didn't turn his head and he didn't look at me. And he kept on looking down at that pond. And then he said, as if he was thinking about the stars in the heavens, Mrs. Murray, I'm studying the habits of the bullfrog. <laughs> and that darn fool had been standing there all the live long day just studying the habits of the bullfrog. What is it that makes it so hard for us sometimes to determine whether we will walk? I believe that there is a subtle magnetism in nature which, if we would yield to it unconsciously, would direct us aright. It is not indifferent to us which way we walk. There is a right way, but we are very liable from heedlessness and stupidity to take the wrong one. We would fain take that walk, never yet taken by us through this actual world, which is perfectly symbolical of the path which we were to travel in the interior and ideal world. And sometimes, no doubt, we find it difficult to choose our direction because it does not yet exist entirely in our idea. When I go out of the house for a walk, uncertain as yet whither I will head my steps and submit myself to my instinct to decide for me, 
I find that I finally and inevitably settle southwest towards some particular wood or meadow or deserted pasture or hill in that direction. The future lies that way for me. And the earth seems more unexhausted and richer on that side. The outline which would bound my walks would not be a circle, but a parabola, or rather like one of those cometary orbits which have been thought to be non-returning curves, in this case opening westward, in which my house occupies the place of the sun. I turn round and round, irresolute sometimes, for a quarter of an hour, until I decide for the thousandth time that I will walk into the southwest or west. Eastward, I only go by force, but westward I go free. Thither, no business leads me. It is hard for me to believe that I shall find fair landscapes or sufficient wildness and freedom behind the eastern horizon. I am not excited by the prospect of a walk thither, but I believe that the forest which I see in the western horizon stretches uninterruptedly toward the setting sun, and that there are no towns or cities in it of enough consequence to disturb me. Let me live where I will. On this side is the city, on that side the wilderness, and ever I am leaving the city more and more and withdrawing into the wilderness. I should not lay so much stress on this fact if I did not believe that something like this is the prevailing tendency of my countrymen. I must walk towards Oregon and not towards Europe. And that way the nation itself is moving. And I may say that mankind's progress is from east to west. We go eastward to realize history and study the works of art and literature, retracing the steps of the race. We go westward into the future with a spirit of enterprise and adventure. I know not how significant it is that an individual should thus consent in his pettiest walk with the general movement of the race, but I know that something akin to the migratory instincts in birds and quadrupeds affects both nation and individuals, either perennially or from time to time. Another, the 10th of these memorable days. We've had some fog the last two or three nights, and this forenoon it was slow to disperse. But this afternoon it is warmer even than yesterday. I should like it better if it were not so warm. I am glad to reach the shade of Hubbard's Grove. The coolness is refreshing. These 10 days are enough to make the reputation of any climate. A tradition of these days might be handed down to posterity. 
They deserve a notice in history, in the history of Concord. Was there ever such an autumn? And yet there was never such a panic and hard times in the commercial world. The merchants and the banks are failing all over the country, but not the sand banks, solid and warm, streaked with bloody blackberry vines. You may run upon them as much as you please, even as the crickets do, and find their account in it. They are the stockholders in these banks, and I hear them creaking their content. In these banks, too, and such as these, are my funds deposited, a fund of health and enjoyment, the prosperity and happiness of the crickets, and I trust my own, do not depend on whether the New York banks suspend or not. We do not rely on such slender security. To put your trust in such a bank is to be swallowed up and undergo suffocation. Invest instead, I say, in these country banks. Let simplicity and contentment be your capital. I have no sympathy with this miserable state of things, no compassion for it. Banks built of granite, after some Grecian or Roman style, with their porticos and their safes of iron, are not so permanent. And cannot give me so good security for capital invested as the heads of withered goldenrod in the meadow. I do not suspect the solvency of these. I know who is their president and cashier. It galls me to listen to the remarks of craven-hearted neighbors who speak disparagingly of John Brown because he resorted to violence, resisted the government, threw his life away. Such minds are not equal to the occasion. They preserve the so-called peace of their community by deeds of petty violence every day. The remarks of my neighbors upon Brown's death and supposed fate with very few exceptions, are served him right. He is undoubtedly insane, died as the fool dieth. And so they proceed to live their sane and wise and altogether admirable lives, reading their Plutarch a little. Our foes are in our midst and all about us, Hardly a house but is divided against itself. For our foe is the all but universal woodenness, both of head and heart. A government that pretends to be Christian and crucifies a million Christs every day. Some 1800 years ago, Christ was crucified. This morning, John Brown was hung. These are the two ends of the chain, which I rejoice to know is not without its lengths. I see now that it was necessary that the bravest and humanest man in all the country should be hung. Perhaps he saw it himself. 
If any leniency were shown him, any compromise made with him by the government, he might be suspected. I rejoice that I live in the age that I was his contemporary. I do not wish to kill or to be killed, but I can foresee circumstances in which both of these things would be by me unavoidable. This event alerts me that there is such a fact as death, the possibility of a man's dying. It seems as if no man has ever died in America, for in order to die, you must first have lived. It is the best news that America has ever heard. It has already quickened the public pulse of the North. It has infused more and more generous blood into her veins and heart than any number of years of what is called commercial and political prosperity could. How many a man who was lately contemplating suicide has now something to live for? There was a remarkable sunset. The sunset sky reached quite from west to east, and it was the most varied in its forms and colors of any that I remember to have seen. At one time, the clouds were mostly softly and delicately rippled, like the ripple marks on sand. But it was hard for me to see its beauty then, when my mind was filled with Captain Brown. So great a wrong as his fate implied, overshadowed all beauty in the world. The thin snow, now driving from the north and lodging on my coat, consists of those beautiful star crystals, not cottony and chubby spokes, but thin and partly transparent crystals. About a tenth of an inch in diameter, they are perfect little wheels with six spokes, or rather, with six perfect little leaflets, fern-like, with a distant, straight, and slender midrib coming from the center. On each side of each midrib, there's a transparent, thin blade with a crenellated edge. How full of the creative genius is the air in which these are generated? I should hardly admire more if real stars fell and lodged on my coat. Nature is full of genius, full of divinity, so that not a single snowflake escapes its fashioning hand. Nothing is cheap and coarse, neither dewdrops nor snowflakes. A divinity must have stirred within them before the crystals did thus shoot and set, wheels of the storm chariots. The same law that shapes the earth star shapes the snow star. As surely as the petals of a flower are fixed, each of these countless snow stars comes whirling to earth, pronouncing thus with emphasis the number six, order, cosmos. What a world we live in. 
where myriads of these little disks, so beautiful to the most prying eye, are whirled down on every traveler's coat, the observant and the unobservant, and on the restless squirrel's fur, and on the far-stretching fields and forests, the wooded dells and the mountaintops. There they lie, like the wreck of chariot wheels after a battle in the skies. Meanwhile, the meadow mouse shoves them aside. The schoolboy casts them in his snowball, and the woodman's sled glides smoothly over them. These glorious spangles, the sweeping of heaven's floor and they all sing, melting as they sing of the mysteries of the number six. Six, six, six. <laughs> my difficulty with my friends are such as no frankness will settle. There is no precept in the New Testament that will assist me. My nature, it may be, is secret. Others can confess and complain, I, I cannot. It is not that I am too proud, but that is not what is wanted. I feel sometimes as if I could say to my friends, my friends, I am aware how I have outraged you, how I have seemingly preferred hate to love, seemingly treated others kindly and you unkindly. I can imagine how I might utter something never to be realized, but let me say frankly at the same time, I feel it may be with too little regret that I am under an awful necessity to be what I am. If truth were known, which I do not know, I have no concern with those friends whom I misunderstand or who misunderstand me. I am of the nature of stone. It takes a summer's sun to warm it. My acquaintances sometimes imply that I am too cold, but each thing is warm enough of its kind. Is the stone too cold, which absorbs the heat of summer sun and does not part with it during the night? Cold, I am the most sensible of warmth on winter days. It is not the warmth of fire that you would have, but coldness, but everything is warm and cold according to its nature. It is not that I am too cold, but that our warmth and coldness are not of the same nature. When I am absolutely warmest, I may be coldest to you. You who find that I am cold, find nature cold. To me, she is warm. When I reached the upper end of this weedy sandbar, I noticed some light-colored object in mid-river near the other end of the sandbar. At first, I thought of some large stake or a board standing amid the weeds there, then of a fisherman in a brown holland sack, referring him to the shore beyond. I floated nearer and nearer till I saw plainly enough the motions of a person, whoever it was, and that it was not a stake. Looking through my glass 30 or 40 rods off, I thought certainly that I saw Channing, who had just bathed, making signals to me with his towel. 
I saw his motions as he wiped himself and movements of his elbow and his towel. Then I saw that the person was nearer and therefore smaller and that it stood on the sandbar in midstream in shallow water and must be some maiden in a bathing dress for it was the color of brown holland and a very peculiar kind of dress it seemed. But at about this time, I discovered with my naked eye that it was a great blue heron. (laughs) Standing in very shallow water amid the weeds of the sandbar and pluming itself. I had not noticed its legs at all and its head, neck and wings being constantly moving I had mistaken for arms, elbows and the towels of a bather. And when it stood stiller, its shapely body looked like a peculiar bathing dress. Suddenly comes the second heron, flying low and alights on the sandbar yet nearer to me, almost high and dry. They were my idea of the river, these two winged men. You have not seen our weedy river. You do not know the significance of its weedy sandbars until you have seen the blue heron waiting and pluming itself on it. I see that it was made for these shallows and they for it. Now the heron has gone from the weedy shoal and the scene appears incomplete. Of course the heron has sounded the depth of the water on every sandbar of the river that is fordable to it. The water there is not so many feet deep as so many herons tibia. Instead of a foot rule, you should use a heron's leg for a measure. (laughs) How long we may have gazed on a particular scenery and think that we have seen and known it, when, at length, some bird or quadruped comes and takes possession of it before our eyes and imparts to it a wholly new character. The heron uses these shallows as I cannot. I give them up to him. I do wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness as contrasted with the freedom and culture merely civil. To regard man as an inhabitant or part and parcel of nature rather than a member of society, there are enough champions of civilization. I have met with but one or two persons in the course of my life who understood the art of walking, that is, of taking walks who had a genius, so to speak, for sauntering, which word is beautifully derived, quote, from idle people who roved about the country in the Middle Ages asking for charity under the pretense of going to the Santerre, to the Holy Land, till the children exclaimed, there goes a Santerre, a saunterer, a holy lander. They who never go to a holy land in their walks, as they pretend, are indeed mere idlers and vagabonds, but they who do go there are saunterers in the good sense, such as I mean. Some, however, would derive the word from sans terre, meaning without land or a home, which therefore will mean having no particular home, but equally at home everywhere. For this is the secret of successful sauntering. He who sits still in a house all the time may be the greatest vagrant of all. 
but the slaughterer is no more vagrant than a meandering river, which is all the time sedulously seeking the shortest course to the sea. But I prefer the first derivation, which indeed is the most probable, for every walk is a sort of crusade to go forth and reconquer this holy land from the hands of infidels. It is true we are but faint-hearted crusaders, even the walkers nowadays who undertake no persevering, never-ending enterprises. Our expeditions are but tours and come round again at evening to the old hearthside from which we set out. Half the walk is but retracing our steps. We should go forth on the shortest walk in the spirit of undying adventure." never to return, prepared to send back our embalmed hearts as relics to our desolated kingdoms. If you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and are a free man, then you are ready for a walk. I think that I cannot preserve my health and spirits unless I walk four hours a day at least. And it is commonly more than that, sauntering through the woods and over the hills and fields, absolutely free from all worldly engagements. When sometimes I, who cannot stay in my chamber for a single day without acquiring some rust, am reminded that the mechanics and shopkeepers stay in their shops not only all the morning but all the afternoon too, sitting with crossed legs, as if legs were made to sit upon and not to stand or walk on, I confess that I am astonished by their power of endurance, to say nothing of the moral insensibility of my neighbors, who confine themselves to shops and offices the whole day for weeks and months, I and years almost together, I know not what manner of stuff they are of. The walking of which I speak has nothing in it akin to taking exercise as the sick man takes medicine at stated hours. You must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates while walking. When a traveler asked Wordsworth's servant to show him her master's study, she said, here's the library, study is outdoors. My vicinity affords many good walks, and though for so many years I've walked almost every day, and sometimes for several days together, I have not exhausted them. An absolutely new prospect is a great happiness, and I can get this any afternoon. Two or three hours walking will carry me to as strange a country as I expect ever to see. A single farmhouse, which I had not seen before, is sometimes as good as the dominions of the king of Doamy. There is, in fact, a kind of harmony between the capabilities of landscapes within a 10-mile circle radius or the limits of an afternoon walk and the three-score years and ten of a human life. It will never become completely familiar to you. At present, in this vicinity, the best part of the land is not private property. The landscape is not owned, and the walker enjoys comparative freedom. But possibly the day will come 
when it will be partitioned off in so-called pleasure grounds in which few will take narrow and exclusive pleasure only, when fences shall be multiplied and man-traps invented to confine men to the public road, and walking over the surface of God's earth shall be construed to mean trespassing on some gentleman's grounds. Let us, therefore, improve our opportunities before those evil days come. Thank you all for being here. Thank Henry David Thoreau. We need him in this season. Thank Eric Carpellas for imagining this event and bringing it up. And all the readers. You've been listening to a TNS community reading of the works of Henry David Thoreau, hosted by Eric Karpolis. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.